It is the most popular participation sport in the United States and also in the United Kingdom. Actually, strictly speaking, it's the second, but in my rule book, the most popular participation sport, walking, is disqualified. Uh, taking a leisurely stroll to your car is not a sport. Uh, come to think of it, I've never been too convinced that the second-placed pastime should be called a sport either. When I was a kid, I used to argue with my friend Ian about exactly this. It was Ian's main hobby. He used to go every Saturday with his dad, sit on a riverbank and cast a nylon line into the water. And then he'd wait. For hours. Then he'd go home again. So I used to annoy him by saying, come on, Ian, that's not a sport. To which he would proudly tell me that angling was indeed a sport and the most popular one in Britain. But it never really caught my imagination, even though Ian would ghoulishly tell me stories of how he put a maggot in his mate's sandwich and his mate never discovered it and how he once had a fish hook in his thumb and couldn't extract it. Despite his best efforts, Ian failed to impress me with these stories from the Angling Hall of Fame. Maybe if he'd battled all day with a hammerhead shark, knowing that this encounter would end in the certain death of one of them, then I'd have been impressed. If he had spun me a yarn about a white whale and an obsessed sea captain, I may have given his hobby the time he was convinced it deserved. But this was England, and Ian fished in meandering, sleepy rivers, where the only exciting thing that ever happened was a drowsy cow dawdling down to the river for a drink. You know the famous saying, Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he'll sit in a boat drinking beer all day. Can you really sit in a beer drinking in a boat drinking beer and call it a sport? Well, they are including breakdancing in the 2024 Paris Olympics, so maybe you can. I went fishing once, sea fishing. When I was 15, I stood at the end of a pier on a grim late October day in the town of Brighton on the south coast of England. I caught something too, and it was a fish, and it was alive. I filled a bucket with seawater, put my prey in it, and took it home. In the morning, it was floating upside down on the surface. So I reckoned it must have been pretty near death's door when I caught it, which probably disqualifies it from my career stats. When the angling record books are written, my one fish will have an asterisk by it. And that is the entire story of my short and not very prolific venture into angling. So when I read Jesus saying to four career fishermen, come follow me and I will make you fish for people, 
I don't get too excited. But then I remember that these fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were not river anglers, but deep sea trawlermen, the kind we would see today off the coast of New England. It's dangerous out there, both for modern day trawlermen and for first century Galileans on their big lake. The inland sea of Galilee was prone to storms that could be violent and unpredictable. The lake lies 680 feet below sea level and is surrounded by high hills up to 2,000 feet. So it's at the bottom of a deep bowl. Often you get cool, dry air descending the hills and meeting with this warm subtropical body of water. And when that happens, the air undergoes a huge change in temperature and pressure. Then look out. The Sea of Galilee is the watery grave of many a trawlerman. So when Jesus takes his purposeful walk along the beach that day and calls these two sets of brothers to go fishing for people, no one is thinking about folding chairs on a riverbank. The only fishing these men know is arduous, painful and dangerous. They get it immediately in a way we don't. Fishing for people is full of risk, hard work and discomfort. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. He went a little further. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the, with the hired men and followed him. There's one word there, one of Mark's favourite words. So much does he love this word that he says it twice. He doesn't drop it into the passage discreetly. He throws it in with dynamic force. When it hits the water, it creates a splash you can't ignore. It makes waves that rock your boat and jolt you out of your ease. The word is immediately. Immediately, Simon and Andrew respond to Jesus' call to follow him. And immediately, James and John follow suit. This invitation is urgent. This Jesus is in a hurry. And this Mark can't waste any time to tell us about it. I'm trying to remember the last time I did something immediately without thinking about it, without working out whether I, it could wait a few minutes. I'm running low on pens. I must make sure to order some on Friday when I have some time. Father Duncan, uh, so-and-so called. She'd like you to visit. Okay, let me look in my diary and see if I have time this afternoon. Dunk, 
Can you empty the dryer? OK, honey, just a minute. To get an immediate response from me, it has to be pretty urgent. Honey, the house is on fire. And I don't think I'm unusual. So how critical, how vital, how irresistibly urgent must be the call of Jesus for the brothers to drop their nets and follow him immediately? I was complaining to a therapist once about someone who seemed to be always angry. I said, I can't deal with this. It's constant. And they get so angry that they lose control. And the therapist said, do they, though, lose control? If a rattlesnake slithered across the floor by their feet, would they carry on yelling at you? Or would they stop yelling and run out of the building? So they're not out of control. They are just making a decision that the most important thing they can be doing at that moment is yelling at you. The most important thing Peter, Andrew, James and John could do at that moment was leave their nets immediately. Leaving their nets, remember, these men are not recreational anglers. When they leave their nets, they walk away from their next paycheck, their next meal, their next good night's sleep. These nets are symbols of their security. They represent their livelihoods, their training, their family's heritage, their future and their pasts. Walking away from their nets. Walking away from our nets. Hearing the urgent call of Christ and considering it so important that we walk away from the things that have given us security, comfort and identity. What's your net? As for stripping away nets, the pandemic has been brutal. So many have lost so much. Millions of nets, of nets have been stolen by a bug too small to see. Covid has snatched people's nets and snatching is just plain rude. How much more noble to make your own choice. To weigh those things that we have relied on for our security, our identity and to choose to walk away. Janet Eckelman picks up discarded nets and turns them into works of art, literally. Janet was spending a year in the Indian coastal town of Bahabalipuram, but her painting materials that she had sent on ahead did not arrive. But Janet Eckelman is not one to be deterred. She discovered discarded fishing nets on the beach and was captured by their design and beauty. So much so, she began to imagine a new sculptural world by suspending and colouring the nets. 
Now, all around the world, in dozens of locations, Eckelman's fishing net sculptures are cast over multiple city blocks. They can be as big as buildings, hundreds of feet tall, wide and long. They move with every breath of wind and change in appearance with every shifting cloud or strength of the sun, the time of day and the position of the viewer. People stand under these nets while they have picnic lunches, wondering and marvelling at these nets. From discarded rubbish comes life and beauty. From the rubbish of our nets, beauty is born. What are your nets? I'm not saying give up your job, your livelihood, the way the brothers did. We live complicated lives, and when Jesus calls us, it rarely involves giving up our careers, our homes, our source of income, but don't completely rule it out. More likely is the call to enter a new relationship with our nets, one where they serve you, not the other way round, where you use them for God's kingdom, not your own, where they are handed over and transformed into things that give joy and beauty to others. It's all about attitude. What are your nets and how do you view them? Do you control them or do they control you? Do they serve you or master you? Do they make the world a better place or a worse one? Can you offer up to God those nets, those symbols of your life and security, and then see them change in a way that is even more striking and beautiful than Janet Eckelman's? Because nets as well as giving us security, can also trap us. They can wrap us up and tie us down. At worst, they can strangle the life out of us. We may even end up like Jonah, but instead of a big fish, we can be swallowed by our nets and drowned. Let's get them in perspective. And if that means cutting yourself loose and walking away free, then let's have the courage to do so. Then we'll be able to fish for people.